Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. Look at him there, sitting on the couch, pretending to care about the Bundesliga. Is that a slice of Black Forest Ghetto? It is! Oh, it doesn't get any more German than that! This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning to you too. Oh, a surprise to have a goodly morning today. What's the cause behind it? Sunshine. Sunshine. The sun is shining. I was out with the dogs earlier on. It's really warm. Uh, it feels like summer. And to me, it's always a, a bit of a surprise when we get some nice weather here in Ireland. So I am just delighted with with the weather. I know there's an awful lot of other stuff going on in the world that we're not going to talk about because we're going to give, uh, give people a bit of an escape from all that. But sure. the, the sunshine in and of itself provides me with enough goodliness to wish you a goodly morning. Well, I'm very grateful. I think we could all do with uh, a goodly morning before long. I also went out for a little walk before the podcast, and it is beautiful, even in England as well. So, I mean, maybe that is goodly in itself. Yeah, maybe it is. So, uh, we are going to talk about bits and pieces with with regards to Arsenal, because there, there have been some developments I know. Since the real last life time, developments, real life footballing developments and things. And I was, um, I said this on Friday or, or Thursday when I was recording the the podcast for Friday. I sort of there was nothing going on, and then all of a sudden, a load of stuff happened, and a load of stuff went on, uh, which would have lent itself to some good discussion in terms of in terms of Arsenal. But it was too late to really do anything on Friday, so we've got a fair bit to get through here. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the first thing is uh, the fact that we know when football is coming back and we've got a date for our very first game. So, yeah. <sighs> yeah. I, I don't know about you, but when I, I was like, football's coming back, oh, great. And then it was like, and it will start with Arsenal going away to Manchester City. And I was like, oh, I forgot uh, about that. Yeah. That, that <laughs> I, I forgot we had to do that. Yeah. I mean, it felt like things happened quite quickly, didn't it? Because mm-hmm. well, I think it was maybe Wednesday... And it was like they've all voted for a return to full training and they can have contact, you know, full contact training, et cetera, et cetera. And then the next day it was like, well, here we go. Here's the the first fixtures are out and we're going to yeah. play Man City on the, the 17th of June. So, you know, it's not too long. It's June now. It's the 1st of June. We're just 16 days away from Arsenal playing football again. So, um, yeah, I mean, leaving aside the Manchester City thing, how how do you feel about it? Uh, a, a real mix of feelings, I have to say, actually. But I think I'll be really excited to watch my team play again and the players that I predominantly like and care about. And uh, there will be a sort of reassuring familiarity, even in the kind of weird setting it's going to be. I'm, I'm 
I'm excited for to watch some football. I can't believe quite how much football is going to be available to watch. Uh, it's yeah. extraordinary. I mean, certainly in the UK, I think pretty much everything is televised. Some things on free-to-air television, either via Sky or through the BBC. It's going to be unlike anything we've ever really seen before. Mm. And I think it will feel kind of self-contained. I feel like it will it try as they might to kind of do a... Um, previously on the Premier League, I think everyone's basically <laughs> forgotten. Do you know what I mean? Actually, I've got so I've got a question about that, which I'll do a little bit later on. But yeah, okay. that's a great idea. Previously on the Premier League, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> but the amount of catch up you'd have to do. Do you know what I mean? It'd be ninety minutes in itself. Fucking hell! Could you imagine doing it for Arsenal? Could you imagine oh. trying to do a previously on Arsenal twenty nineteen twenty? And you start with this sort of summer of of, of optimism when we all thought things were going to be yeah. good. Uh, you know, the transfer business and people. People were a bit excited and, and enthused by that. And then the sort of slow, steady, inexorable decline of, of Unai Emery and the team playing poorly and Freddie Jumberg coming in and just poor old Freddie sitting there with Per Mertesacker behind him and the tea lady, who was his only other member of staff, trying to figure it out. There was that great moment, wasn't there, at one point in one of the games. I can't remember who it was or who did something. And the, the, the camera just cut to Freddie on the sideline, put his hands on his head, and he's just looking like, What? Have you yeah. done what? What are you? Are you a professional? I can't remember what it was, but it was probably some kind of defensive calamity. And Freddie, and then the the whole Arteta thing happening, and then wow, yeah, it would take about uh, two weeks to watch a previously on I Arsenal. Henrik Mkhitaryan played for Arsenal this season. That, That's like that seems a long time ago. That is mental, isn't it? Yeah. It's mental to think this about This very that. same season we're about to recommence. Yeah. Henry played for us. Um, yeah, so I think that it will have kind of a... It will feel like a weird sort of mini tournament, I think, the Premier League that's being played out. And mm. um, I think it will be quite exciting in that respect. It'll, there'll be a bit of that sort of World Cup summer energy to it. Um yeah, there's just, a sort unfortunately, of, not the atmosphere. The unknownness of it all, because we don't, re- you know, previously we could, you know, as the season goes on, you're sort of aware of what's happening and, you know, form plays a part and the strength of a team and mm. and all of those sort of things give you an idea of what you more or less think is going to happen. And look, of course, you can be wrong and very often are wrong about the way certain games, certain performances turn out. But we're going into this off the back of an unprecedented event, which no manager, whether you're a rookie like Mikel Arteta, who's only managed, what, 10 games uh, as a Premier League manager, or somebody like Roy Hodgson, who has had a long and storied career. He's been around Europe. He's, you know, managed England. Uh, You know, he has such a wealth of experience. He has never had to deal with anything like this. So I wonder, is is there going to be like an equalization in some ways. Like nobody really is going to have an advantage in this situation based on what they've done in the past. We may find that some managers come out of it well because they're able to think laterally or they've got good medical staff or whatever it might be. And that, you know, that will come out in the wash as the games are played. But, Mm. but the idea that we have literally no idea what the impact is going to be on players, clubs, teams, performances, uh, and and just the experience itself lends itself to this kind of wide-eyed excitement, which I realize, you know, in the grand scheme of things, and because of 
because of why it's happened, you probably shouldn't um, ignore that. But it, it is what it is from a sporting perspective. Yeah, I think that there's probably going to be a bit more mobility in the table than there would otherwise be at this point in a season, in a traditional sense, because, you know, you never know. You might have the team that is perfectly suited to this weird scenario, or mm. like you say, the coach who is the perfect coach to have in a pandemic and you didn't even realise it this whole time. I don't know, but I do feel like it is harder to predict than than it ordinarily is the only sort of caveat I'd offer to that is that in Germany uh from what I understand the big teams have looked pretty comfortable for the most part mm. and it's almost like in removing some of the vagaries of the season it's almost like it's arrived at sort of greater objectivity and kind of you know right. talent and the depth of squad is kind of outing so that will be interesting too to see if that kind of replicates in England yeah. but yeah it's um it's going to be super weird and like uh, you know i don't really remember all the intricacies of kind of where we are in the table and what we need but i kind of think that it's almost not that worth thinking about in a funny kind of way like because everything it it kind of feels like anything could happen you know um yeah yeah i mean do you feel like let's go back to march before any of this happened and let's say we'd finished without european football i think we would have been quite bothered by that even if it was just you know europa sure right and i do wonder you know if we finish without European football this time, assuming that there is some European football to to even happen, right? I, I think we're probably going to be a bit more sanguine about it because of the circumstances in which everything has taken place. Absolutely. I mean, there are lots of different factors to that. So one is, you know, okay, if we don't qualify for Europe, we don't have any money. Well, guess what? No mm. one's got any money anyway. Uh, if we don't qualify for Europe, we won't have European games. Well... Guess what? There might not be European games next season, or certainly not in anything like the conventional form we're used to. And I also think, above and beyond all that, there's Mm. kind of a greater sense of perspective, maybe. And who knows how long that lasts. But right now, I think people are sort of grateful to be... Well, they're grateful for a lot of things, but they're grateful to be watching their team in action more than necessarily worrying about where that is. I mean, who knows how long that will last? Yeah, one game. One game. I'd say one game. Pitchforks out. Yeah, exactly. First defeat. Yeah. uh, You know, we'll all be up in arms. But, yeah, I know exactly what you mean by that. The stakes kind of feel reduced. I mean, I know that this is the end of the 2019-20 Premier League season. I recognise that. Yeah. But it in no way feels like it. It does sort of weirdly feel like a free hit. And let's be clear, for the teams that are relegated, it won't feel like that at all. No. Uh, it will be agonising for them. And I almost feel like we might be on the the verge of another sort of Sheffield United crisis, you know, like when they went down and Carlos Tevez had been playing for West Ham. And, oh, yeah, yeah. They, they appealed against it. West Ham, I think, had to pay damages. But, like, yeah, so it feels like we might end up in that sort of legal quagmire. Maybe, but I think if the games are played, then 
you I, think surely uh, they've come to an agreement yeah. prior. You've consented ultimately. Yeah, exactly. I think if if you know there had been a an adjudication on the season, I think then it would have been a legal minefield. But actually playing the games um, yeah. is You're going to that. sort of do away with that to a certain extent. Like you say, all the games are going to be televised uh, in the UK uh, and Ireland. I know that in certain parts of the world, you know, you've got access to every game anyway. But for us, mm. this is a this is a well. Look, if you know how to do streaming, you've got access to every game uh, anyway. But but the simple task of sitting down and turning on your TV to watch football isn't always available to us. It will be in, in this uh, in this particular setup, and that obviously makes a lot of sense because you know the the confirmation that fans are not going to be allowed in the stadiums was not a surprise. But but even just seeing it written down, it felt a bit stark, you know. Mm. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what what changed my not changed my mind, but sort of improved my mood about the season returning was last week. I don't know if you happened to see any of the Bayern Munich Dortmund game last week. Yeah, was it last week? Monday, I think Tuesday? so. Five p.m. Uh, it was great, and like there was no crowd, of course, mm. and no. But I think it would be wrong to say there was no atmosphere because there was such an intensity about the way the game was played. It almost had the feel of those sort of Galactico games, you know, from from the Spanish League a few years ago. Just two great teams going toe-to-toe. And I recognise that's not the product we're going to get every single game in the Premier League. Mm. But it made me think, given that those are not teams that I particularly care about and the degrees which I was able to sort of invest and be interested in that match, mm. it made me think, OK, I think I think this will work. I think, you know, the Premier League being back will be, for fans, a, a positive thing. Uh, we had a load of questions, uh, which I'm going to do here. I'll just give the people a shout out. Uh, Mark Charalambus, Charalambus, who's that, Mark? Uh, Chara, sorry, Mark, I've absolutely butchered your name. I know Charalambus. I, Charalambus. I went to school with a, another Charalambus. There you go. Um, Thank you. So you saved my bacon. Then. Okay, that's good. Um, Mark says, uh, with confirmation of the league uh, set to continue, uh, what will be our starting 11 versus Man City on the 17th of June? Daniel Keenan. Hi, both. Uh, can you predict a starting 11 for City away now that football is back? He says, I know you love these. And... Uh, Kid Large, who's at Kid underscore Heavy, says, Starting 11 versus City! Question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. He had a lot of question marks and in capitals. So I think well, he's, I mean, he's very excited. If there's ever a time to do this question, surely it's now. Surely it's uh, now when we have no information whatsoever on the uh, state of the players' yeah, uh, fitness or anything It's complete speculation. Like Are we assuming... Yes. And would we be right to assume that, let's say, bar someone like Lucas Torreira, who is coming back from a serious injury, the ankle break that he sustained, mm. like everyone else is going to be fit, assuming like they don't get a you know a hamstring strain in training, et cetera, et cetera. Which can happen. Can. Which can happen. And probably I mean, I will. fell down my stairs yesterday, Andrew. Anything could happen. Well, this, this is a good omen. This is a good omen for, true, for the return true, of football. True. James fell down. You didn't hurt yourself too badly, I hope. No, my knee was making some weird noises afterwards, but it seems fine today. Right. So all, all I'm saying is, you know, let's mm. hope our players 
avoid injury in similar circumstances. But I think you're right. I mean, we haven't had any injury updates, have we, in this period? We've not had, like, no. on Arsenal.com a thing saying, like, yeah, we think everyone's fine. Yeah. They're at home. Uh, they've got repetitive strain injuries from playing too many computer games. <laughs> I like that one, yeah. Like, uh, uh, squad news, everyone being assessed ahead of Man City. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I, I think, yeah, I think we can assume that, that people will be fit. I mean, obviously Callum Chambers, Lucas Torreira, there are people with some long-term yeah. concerns, but everyone else should be in contention. I mean, I think mm. even Torreira is probably not that far away at this point. No, um, I mean, his season-ending injury has been um, transformed into, like... A season-beginning season injury. season-beginning injury, yeah. So uh, with a nice, nice big rest in the run-up. Yeah. So yeah, I think let's operate on the idea that everyone's kind of available. Let's do um, that then. Okay. So Burn Leno's going to be in goal because mm. no one will remember, of course, but Burn Leno was quite good this season. Yes, he's a good goalkeeper. He, he has been a good have goalkeeper. Blocked it out, but there was a period where we were entirely dependent on Burn Leno for mm. any kind of uh, defensive respite. So you'd go for him. You'd go for uh, Hector Bellerin at right back, I guess. Mm-hmm. With his shorn head. Yes. Shaved. Don't know what the right word is there. Shaved. Um, shaved, yeah. Shaved. Freshly shorn. Cha- Freshly shaven head. Uh, then it gets tricky, it I does. think, in defence. Because when we... When, previously on the Arsenal League... Uh, Bukayo Saka was good, wasn't he? At yes, left back. he was. But um, we have two other left backs, one of whom, Kieran Tierney, is presumably fit. Yeah, now. yeah. His shoulder injury is his is shoulder well has and been reattached. Yeah. His arm is back on. It's always he's ready good to go. But is he ready? Re- Do you know what I mean? Is he game ready? I think that's well. Nobody's game ready. That's it. But we're all equal here. So. Yeah. I still... What do you think he'll do at left-back? I kind of think he will go with Tierney. And again, this is based on no evidence. I just wonder if, you know... Well, he if was we're nice in about a, him in an interview, He was. He? Said he was a very nice young man and a good player, etc., etc. I just have a feeling that the, the Saka situation as a whole is one that he might be cognizant of in the sense that, you know, the contract thing is a thing, right? Mm. Does Saka want to be a left-back? I think he might want to play further forward, even if he is and has been very good at left-back. So does that play a part in how you set up your team going forward? Like there are there are levels, aren't there? Like could could this be the last nine games of Pierre Emerick Aubameyang's time at Arsenal? If it is, do you play him on the left wing, or do you play him as a striker where he's best? You know, so maybe mm. you play Tierney, and on the left hand side of your attack, you put in Saka, and you look at those two as perhaps a foundation for the future. Two guys who could work together very well. Uh, Tierney likes to get forward. We know that Saka is good um, going forward, but also pretty good defensively as well. So those two, if that's what you're, if this is what you're trying to do, you got a free hit, and you can put everything and start putting the pieces together in place for the long term. 
maybe that's what you do. I think that's very sound logic. I have no logic to back up my argument. Okay. But I think my... Hmm, I, I think... I think that, that would be a good thing to do. My gut says that maybe Saka carries on at left back. Right. Just a feeling based on sort of like a desperate attempt to kind of um, get some kind of continuity from what was working when football stopped. But mm. I, I, I would definitely think that in the long term, Tierney would be a more interesting selection. So let's mm. say it's our team, isn't it? So let's say Tierney. Okay. All right. What about centre backs? Um, um. Well, it was sort of L- Louise and Mustafi when we left it, wasn't it? It was, and I kind of have a feeling that is going to be the case again. Yeah, I think the only other contender is Pablo Marie, isn't he? Yes, yes. Um, but I think that, yeah, I think it'll be Mustafi. Louise. Mm. I mean, again, you could make an argument that in the long term, Marie is a more appropriate selection. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, especially if you're possibly losing David Louise, um, because they're both more comfortable really on the left hand side. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a strange one. We're going to have it. We'll talk about the Louise thing in, in a few minutes. Um, yeah. But yeah, look, he does have an option there. He does have Pablo Marie. Um, he also has Socrates, Rob Holding as well, uh, a contender. Um, so he's got a options big, big there. Big game for Pablo Marie. Uh, would be against his former club, yeah. Technically, a Man City player. Yes, I think I would. Hmm, I think I would err on the side of Luisa Mustafi. Incredibly, would I, you or would uh, you go Pablo Marie? I can understand why Arteta might go with that. Sure. It's not necessarily a choice. Do yeah, it. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I couldn't advocate for that myself, but I can understand why Arteta might, particularly, you know, in a, a, against a team like City um, with quick players and everything else. What's your midfield then? I mean, I'm assuming a midfield three. Like well, I, I think it will be similarly... Well, if we've gone with Tierney at left back, then Saka's going to be on the left. I mean, I think Shaka will play for yep. sure. Yep. Uh, I think maybe Danny Ceballos will play. Hmm. I I had sort of thought about a Xhaka Genduzi Ceballos midfield because I you know Macedonia away against Man City. I know, but he does tend to pick us. Yeah, he? he does. Yeah. He does. But, you know, there's all this evidence and stuff. Sure, but, you know, you scientists with your evidence and your data. With your facts. Yeah. You don't need I'm to. absolutely sick of it. We don't need experts. Um, what about... Because we, we basically know, right, that if we've picked Saka left wing, we're probably going to pick a Bamiang up front and probably Pepe on the right-hand side. I had Pepe down, but you know, I'm I'm sort of in this. I feel like you know somebody like Reese Nelson might be in with a shout. Sure, Martinelli. Martinelli, maybe not so much, because I think he's just more of a he's more of a free spirit in the in the attacking third. Um, whereas if so you're you looking for go. structure from from a team, maybe 
he could pick Reese Nelson because he has done in the past. And if you're looking for somebody to, you know, support Hector Bellerin, maybe that might be the the way to go. Yeah. And Pepe is a really interesting player to have up your sleeve in the old five subs game, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, he can... He can change a game. He does have that ability. Yeah. Um, and then, so you were thinking a three in midfield and no Mesut Ozil, potentially. Mm. Well, Gunduzi was like, was it last season? Gunduzi was really excellent away to Man City. I've um, I've sort of wiped last season from my memory. Sure. So. I mean, I mean, we were babies <laughs> when last season happened. I don't know. But I seem to recall he was kind of our best player uh, in that game. Uh, I don't think we got anything, obviously. But no, uh, yeah, I, I, I'd be all for that. I'd be all for that. I mean, I think when we talk about central midfield, mm. I think it becomes sort of quite quickly apparent that that is the most problematic area of the pitch for this team. Yeah, I mean, without Torreira being fit, you know, who you could see as a, a good fit in a game away at Man City, you know, with the kind of qualities and the, and the, the attributes that he has, I don't think he's going to be ready for, for Man City away. Um, maybe I think they've just you know I, I, I'd be surprised I mean I, but yeah you know you mentioned Shaka and he's been good under Arteta but we know there are plenty of objections to him from, mm. from that section of the fan base so Bios eh, kind of mm. kind of good kind but of. sort of not really been consistent enough um, and Genduzi very young and prone to inconsistency as well as a consequence mm. So that's the area that it'll be, in some ways, most interesting to see what Arteta does because he's been very wedded to this particular shape it, it, until mm. now, which has been, you know, with Özil as a kind of ten, Aubameyang from the left, Lacazette dropping in as a centre forward, and someone holding their position on the right. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not he persists with that. Yeah, or whether you know there might be a surprise. Uh, selection with a young player or something like that. So. Yeah, and also, how much does he know about Manchester City? You know, when he he might think, well, I I know what they do so well that I know a tactic that can counteract it, and therefore will implement something specific. Um, a bit like he did when he coached Manchester City against Arsenal, and he was able to sort of say, you know, this is how you take them apart, and they did. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm 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 excited and I'm intrigued to see which way. It goes, for sure. And and weirdly, I mean, look, there's never a good time to play Man City. They are a really good team. But it feels like there's a kind of a random element to this particular meeting. You know, it's the first game. Mm. No one really knows what shape anybody's in. No one can sort of quite figure out how motivated people will be. I mean, Man City arguably are in this sort of weird position where they're restarting a season where they sort of know they won't win it. They also sort of know they're going to be in the top four. You know, it could suit us. It could suit us. Yeah, I mean, if there is, I'm not saying there's a good time or this is a good time because both teams will have um, had their issues with fitness and, and being physically ready. And, and, you know, when you mention Germany and you say the big teams have come through pretty well in the opening weeks of the Bundesliga, you know, City are a big team and they have maybe the quality, the overall quality sure. to, to deal with it better than we do. You know, it might take us a little bit of time to, to sort of get up to speed. Equally, 
you know, the same might apply to Man City and we could have a good day and they might have an off day, um, as is, you know, could be the case anyway. So, yeah, we just have we just have no idea. Anyway, it'll be very interesting to hear, uh, I assume, from Mikel Arteta and from the manager uh, about the squad and the team over the coming days. Um, I would imagine we'll hear something this week. No, just... Um, mm. Just for the sake of, of some hashtag content, if you like, now that everybody's yeah. back in full training, some ob- observations on how it's going uh, wouldn't go amiss. I mean, I can tell you from my perspective, I, you know, we don't know as journalists what kind of access we'll have. Like, you know, there's not been any talk yet about press conferences or uh, getting into games, stuff like that. But I imagine surely the club will do some sort of internal interview with Mikel mm. sooner rather than later. It'd be fascinating to hear from them because all we've got to go on at the moment is sort of Stu's pictures, isn't it, from yeah. training. And it's great to see. I mean, I've loved how excited everyone's been just at training pictures. You know, it's like pre-season ramped up, isn't it, uh, in terms of how people are reacting to that stuff. Yeah. The other thing I, I guess that we'll find out this week is the rest of the fixture schedule because if they've arranged the first couple of games yeah. and haven't announced the rest, you would assume that this week we will get some clarity on the... Um, on the fixtures, when and you know where they're going to take place, because there are some talks about games being played at neutral venues, and I know uh, that, that perhaps the the Merseyside derby is one that they earmarked, and I think the North London derby, which was due to take mm-hmm. place at the uh, the Toilet Bowl, um, is one of those games that they're talking about uh, having uh, at a neutral venue. So, um, yeah. even though I think the clubs are pretty much opposed to that, aren't they? They are. I think a lot of it surrounds Liverpool and them winning the league and the feeling that that might prompt street parties and things like that. I mean, I have to say, whether that game is played in uh, at Anfield or at Villa Park or wherever it might be, surely the chances of people being out on the streets of Liverpool celebrating are kind of roughly the same. Uh, mm. I, I don't know that having the game somewhere else necessarily prevents congregation of people. Do you know what I mean? No, of course not. Of course not. Um, it um, might prevent congregation of people around the stadium, yeah. but, you know, I I feel like if uh, and when, when, when Liverpool win the title, their fans are going to take to the streets. Um, you know, they're not going to be in the pubs, but I think we've seen over the last number of days and certainly with some of the things that have gone on, the idea of lockdown and I you know it's kind of gone to a large extent and and from what I understand that um from today is it measures in the UK are being relaxed yeah relaxed? I mean today in the UK I think you can meet outside in a group of six people if you're two meters away from each other but I think what's happened um kind of politically is has sort of undermined the lockdown if you see what i mean so mm. i think it's not being upheld with anything like the rigor that it was and also it'll be interesting to see like it's very easy to say june 17th and we can all look at that and go well right now that feels feasible but then if you're talking about these fixtures running to like end of july or august at that point you're really dependent on things continuing to get better for quite a sustained period of time and actually you know that's not sort of medically or scientifically guaranteed so it's it'll be tricky for them to kind of unfold that full schedule because there can be no guarantees essentially that it will 
be met. Um, yeah. I have to say, I was a bit disappointed that the FA Cup, plans for the FA Cup aren't for the little mini-tournament yeah. playoff-style thing at the end of the season. That is uh, that is a bit of a shame. Yeah, we've got a game against Sheffield United. We've got a date June, for that one, yeah? End of June, 26th or 27th? 27th or 28th, I believe. Right. And then mid-July for the semi-finals. Final on the 1st of August seems to be the plan. So, uh, you know, w- we are looking roughly, if things continue and... You know, rates of infection keep going down at finishing the season at the start of August and probably starting it again, I don't know, before... I mean, certainly in September. Well, I mean, they couldn't realistically take another long break, could they? Having having had no real physical work at all for a couple of months. And I know that players have been doing their bits and pieces and doing their treadmills and doing their weights and, and all that kind of stuff. But but the idea of like this enforced three-month break from football, um, you finish the season in a, in a clutch of games, you're not going to send the guys off. Nobody's going anywhere on holidays anyway, are they? You know, um, so you're not going to give them another four to six week break um, like you would have done previously. There's no, I just feel like it's going to start again pretty quickly. So if the FA Cup, mm. are we are we assuming the FA Cup is the is the final game of the domestic season? I think so. That's the plan. Uh, the cli- the sort of climax of the season. I think I'm right in saying that there were mooted dates for European finals. Not that that's something Arsenal need to worry about at this point around a similar kind of time Mm. um so that's the plan that is the plan that will play out this season across june and july and then there'll be a few week gap and football will be back but i think i mean once the premier league is back up and running and project restart is kind of in action there'll have to be a whole other set of conversations about the parameters for next season yeah um and i understand why that's sort of been on the back burner while they try and resolve this season because there are all kinds of financial imperatives that mean they need to do so but yeah next season's a whole other challenge isn't it it sure is sure is and look you know we'll we'll be in a better position to think about that and to make decisions and, and everything else um you know, when we've gone through this round of games, when football does begin again, because there'll be a lot to learn from from how it happens, how it goes down. And I think what what I'm curious about is how fans will react. Um, and by fans, I mean the, the, the sort of match-going fans um, mm. to being excluded. Because, you know, I thought about this over the weekend. You know, for, for those of us who watch the majority of our games on television, the only real problem for us is the fact that fans aren't in the ground. Therefore, there's no atmosphere, there's no cheering, uh, unless, of course, they introduce the... <laughs> Did I read somewhere today they were going to bring in, like, the sound effects from FIFA 20? Um, I think sh- that was mooted somewhere. I, yeah. I know that with the German games, some of the US broadcasters have been doing uh, crowd noise. Uh, and, and apparently... Very successfully. I mean, someone, a couple of people took me saying, I thought this would be awful. Yeah. I've, actually, I've, yeah. it has added something. I've seen people say that as well. The people have, uh, you know, enjoyed it. I Look, if it's an optional thing, I think that's fine, you know, mm. but don't force it on people because I think it, it's sort of, ultimately, I think it's disrespectful to the fans who should be in the stadium. 
right? Because well, yeah, I mean, it kind of <laughs> it's the ultimate sort of reducing them to uh, a product, basically mm. that they can inject or not. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with you there. I think, look, in an age of digital sort of red button technology, mm. I mean, you've said many times you'd like commentary to be optional, so yeah. that surely should be optional too. Yeah, yeah, and look, I mean, I'm. I'm just curious as to what it will be like for fans who who watch all of their football uh, or, or certainly home games anyway and I know there's people who go home and away um, but watch their football inside the stadium having to watch it in this weird state on television and and you know what sort of impact it might have on their relationship with with the game or with the club or, or however it might be you know I know that the 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 lines are open, if you like, for people to get their season ticket refunds and, and everything else from today, uh, the cashback facility that the club are, are providing. So that's an ongoing process. Um, but it will be it will be another thing that we're going to have to deal with because, you know, there's a slight worry, isn't there, that, that if, you know, if the attempts to sort of manipulate the, the television viewing experience are... Successful, successful. And, yeah. and if they sort of go down relatively well with uh, people at home, what is to say that that won't influence the way football and sport is broadcast in the future? Like, I know that they already have, there's an element of sound design, if you like, um, from the broadcasters. You can turn up certain mics, you can turn down certain mics, but for the most part, you're getting this kind of authentic um, experience from within the stadium. Mm. But what's to say that, you know, in an empty st- or a half-empty stadium when things come back, you know, in the, w- in the same way that commentary can influence our perception of a game because of the way they talk about it, what if the crowd noise can give you a different idea of a game or I don't know. I just worry a little bit that, that they might then say, well, are the people who go to games really that important for the, for the broadcasting experience? Yeah. And I think a little bit of that already goes on. I mean, certainly if there's a sky game in which fans chant against, you know, fixtures being moved to accommodate TV schedules, that crowd noise disappears very, very quickly and is replaced by a kind of generic roar. Uh, and I think miking of different sections of fans can distort your your feeling of, you know, who can be heard. I mean, I think away fans are often miked to mm. provide more balance, for example, in, yeah. the, in the broadcast. So there is a little bit of that already, and I share your concerns. And I also have great sympathy for people who who love watching live football and who spend yeah. a great deal of their time doing that and travel up and down the country. I mean, it, it's not going to be the same for them mm. at all. Um, and yeah, I, I, I really sympathise with that. So yeah, it, it, there, look, there's a lot that's going to feel odd about it. Um, but like I say, that, that, that one game I watched in the Bundesliga sort of restored my feeling that if it was players out there who I was invested in and teams I was invested in, mm. that I I personally could, you know, get something out of this. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that won't be the case for everybody because it's going to be a different product. Um yeah. But it's going to be case by case. All right. Well, look, we will take a break here. We've done enough in part one. We are going to come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you yeah, know where we are. I know where we are. Uh, this is part two. Yes. Four. Part, part nine. Part nine, where we do uh, interpretive dance in relation to the questions that you ask us uh, via your minds. So this is going to be a it's fairly not a great sun. podcast format, to be honest. Here, uh, hang on. Here's my... Hang on. I'm going to do mine. What do you think? That actually sounded pretty good. Yeah, not bad. Eh? Not bad. <laughs> this is part two, where we answer questions that you send to us via Twitter uh, at Gunnar Blog and at Arsblog on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog, and on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. Before we uh, get into the questions, James, I just have to read out winners of a competition that I did on the Arscast last week, not last week, the week before last. Uh, we had some copies of uh, a book by uh, Matt Spiro and... Uh, it's called Sacre Bleu, Zidane to Mbappe, a football journey. And I forgot to give the answers uh, and the winners on Friday's show because I'm quite forgetful. Um, the random number generator did its thing. And the winners of the book are Claire Betas, Connor Whelan, John Hoskins, or Hawkins. Where did I? I can't remember. Ben Fountain. I like people who've got like things as their surname. Yeah, like, I agree. Like um, Bob Spade or yeah. Trevor Ladle. It, absolutely. Ralph Spoon. Yeah. Et cetera. Um, Paolo Solari, I think. I've written these down and now I can't read my own handwriting. Do you know what's happened? Uh, you know what's happened? In this lockdown, I've turned into a doctor. That's exactly what's happened. My what hand, do you mean? You ever get a prescription from a doctor? You can never read what they've written. Uh, Their handwriting right, yeah. is always so terrible. Which you think is dangerous, really. It sure Be clear is. about what medicines people are taking. Yes. The doctor says I'm to take 300 grams of cocaine every day. Every single day. Yes. 
Uh, Nick Andrews is the final winner. So well done to all of you guys, assuming I got your names right. Uh, I know the names in the emails anyway, so I will be on to you by email to get your name or to get your addresses and the books will get sent out to you. So uh, congratulations again. Right. Let's get on with questions. And uh, there was a big story over the weekend about David Louise and, uh, you know, his contract and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we have some people asking Tokyo Gunner, who's at Tokyo underscore Gunner, and Arsnalovic, uh, who want to know what are your thoughts on uh, Kia Jarabchian uh, denying the David Louise transfer numbers in the article by. Amy Lawrence, uh, which was in The Athletic, which estimated that the total cost of the David Luiz transfer for one season for Arsenal was around the £24 million mark when you took into account transfer fee, intermediaries fees, wages, etc. Yeah, it's a lot of money. Mm, for one season, yeah. I think, even, I mean, you know, I think even if you... Even if you set aside uh, any intermediaries fee, I think paying eight million pound for a guy who's only going to play one season and who could potentially go for nothing at the end of it mm. is a, a questionable thing to do. Um, as for as for Kia denying that story, I suppose that it's to a certain extent inevitable. All I can say is that. Having known Amy a long time and worked with Amy a long time, she doesn't do news stories lightly. And, you know, I think we all know that she's someone who wouldn't say something unless she had very good cause to believe it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't, it doesn't surprise me, though, that there's been a sort of public response to that. I think that, you know, that's inevitable, that kind of to and fro. Yeah, yeah. It is, I mean, it is a huge amount of money for one season for a player who... Um, you know, at 33 years of age, has got no resale value or anything like it. I mean, devil's advocate, people would say we were in a, di- a difficult situation because of the Lauren we Koscielny thing. Yeah. Um, you know, we had and, less... And a weird position because because of the Saliba deal as well. It was kind of an odd situation where in some ways we almost needed a, sh- a sticking plaster, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like an experienced centre-half to replace an experienced centre-half. Um, He has gone for some huge transfer fees, hasn't he, David Luiz? Yeah, he's he's missed a deadline day, really, as a rule. Um, I think he's moved from Benfica to Chelsea, uh, Chelsea to PSG, back to Chelsea from PSG. Mm. And they've been... There, I, I, there can't be too many more expensive defenders in the history of football in terms of their cumulative transfer fees. Yeah, Chelsea, Benfica to Chelsea, and this, these are um, fees listed by transfer marked. Um, Benfica to Chelsea for twenty-two million, then Chelsea to PSG for forty-four and a half million, then yeah. PSG back to Chelsea for thirty-one and a half million, and then to Arsenal. Uh, on a one-year deal with an option for eight million pounds. So, yeah, that's a I lot. Mean, yeah, Chelsea did well out of that, didn't they? They sort of, mm. you know, got the player back and made some money on it in the process. I think. Um, what what to say about it? I mean, setting aside the sort of agents' fee issue, what do you make of the dilemma that surrounds whether or not his contract should be extended? It's an interesting one because we have two defenders 
in Socrates and Shkodran Mustafi, who under normal circumstances demand to be sold. You know, if we'd gone into this summer, both of them with 12 months left on their contract, um, both of them, because of their performance levels, uh, should be sold because you need to get some money in to, uh, you know, to replace them. I don't think either of them have been uh, good enough, you know. I don't think Socrates has been quite as bad as people have said, but certainly hasn't had a good time. And Mustafi, I know that, that people have sort of somehow forgotten the three years of Mustafi that happened before Mikel Arteta, three and a half years of Mustafi that happened before Mikel Arteta took over and made him look reasonably competent again. But, you know, there, there'd be no way... Uh, based on the history of the player that you would offer him a new deal. So you have to sell or, you know, ordinarily you would have had to sell both of those players. And in those circumstances, you could probably make the case that Luis under Arteta has been decent-ish. It's been okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think so, so. You know, he's been, he's certainly a lot better than he was when he was playing for a coach he didn't like. And I know the whole Emery thing had an impact on all the players and all the performance levels. Um, so... You, you well, would- well, one of the interesting things about Louise is that I think he's a pretty good leader. And when you want a manager out uh, in the history of his career, he has led a lot of those efforts on the players' behalf. That's so not necessarily like that. the kind of leadership that most clubs are looking for, though. No, no, no. But when it, when he is content and happy, I mean, I actually think that the sort of tricky thing with Louise is that as good as he's been on the pitch, I do... I have to say, have the sense that he has been a very valuable yes. lieutenant to Arteta. Yeah, well, I think uh, in general, he's a popular guy in the squad. He seems like a very, very nice uh, man. You know, I was—I remember when we were signing him and I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, David Luiz, mm. I can't really believe we're doing this. But, you know, we needed a defender and, and everything else. And I remember watching the video of his first day at Arsenal and, and arriving to do his medical and everything else. And he just seemed like a really nice guy, very humble, didn't come with any airs or graces or, 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 or anything like that. And I think he has been quite useful to some of the younger players in the squad, particularly Gabriel Martinelli, you know, the Brazilian connection. So, you know, like I said, in normal circumstances, if you could sell Mustafi and Socrates, you could make a good case for extending Louise's contract. But do you uh, think the issue is that there's not going to be a buyer for those two? I basically? think it's going to be very difficult to find a buyer for, for those two. And the other the other thing that you have to bear in mind is, let's say you're Socrates and you're at Arsenal on 100 grand a week or whatever it might be. And let's say you're Shkodran Mustafi and you're at Arsenal on 100 grand a week. More or less, you know, remember he was a 35 million pound signing and those, you know, those transfer fees aren't just big transfer fees. They inform the the salary level as well. So an agent is going to say, well, if you're prepared to pay 35 million pounds for my client, you know, and at that time it was a pretty substantial fee. I think he was like the sixth most expensive defender of all time in the Premier League or maybe higher than that when he signed. You know, you're not going to come in on a pittance in terms of wages. So if I'm those guys, and I'm Socrates and I'm 31, how old is Socrates? 31? Um, I think he must be at least that. Yeah, he's 31. Uh, for another week. For another week, yes. He's going to be 32 on the 9th of June. But until then, he, of course, remains 31 because that's how it works. Uh, Mustafi is a bit younger. Um, but if I'm both of those guys, I'm looking at, the financial impact of 
the COVID-19 crisis on football and football clubs and their ability to, to pay wages. I mean, we have, we have a situation with Mohamed Elneny, who's owed money by Besiktas, and there's a big dispute there. So, you know, if you're those guys and you look to move or you're open to moving this summer, what are you moving to? And what kind of financial package can you expect from the club that you move to? If we're assuming that both of those guys would have would get a move to, let's say, a could we say a mid-tier European club, something like that? Sure. That would be well, not unreasonable. In the past, it was certainly the case that in these moves, footballers never lost money. Mm-hmm. So if they were either, if they were going to take a, a, a pay cut, theoretically, to go and play in the Bundesliga or whatever it might be, they would ensure that they got what they were rowed, effectively. Yeah. You know, so the club would have to pay them some compensation that covered the remainder of their contract. Something like that. Yeah. So now, are you going to move? Are you going to move if you're going to get a pay cut or are you going to see out the final year of your contract and earn your wages as you're perfectly entitled to do? Um, I I have a feeling it's going to be very, very difficult to move players that we previously would have wanted to move. And if we need to take a chunk off the wage bill, then not taking up the option on Louise is maybe an easier way to do it. Well, let's put it in this context. I think the 12.5% pay cut that the squad took, Mm. that... We, how much do we think that saved the club a year? About, about thirty million quid. But we twenty four million, I think, is what we came up. So, it, the athletic story yesterday said that Louise was paid approximately ten million per season, mm. and that aspect of the story has not been challenged in any way thus far. So, kind of incredible that Arsenal could save themselves almost half what they got by getting everyone to take a pay cut just by shedding Louise. And that might be in their thoughts, you know? It's like mm. a... It, it's a ve- Given that you've got a guy like Mesut Ozil on 350 grand a week who you couldn't get to break that contract previously, you've got absolutely zero chance of doing that mm-hmm. now. You've also got probably the second highest paid player at the club is Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. His situation... I think who knows what's going to happen with that. There's talk in France and Italy today that Arsenal are talking about a contract extension with him. So you're you might be committing to that salary in the long term. You're certainly <laughs> in a position where you might be committed to it for the next twelve months. Yeah, because uh, the the buyers who might have been there for him may be thinking, "I'll just get him for free in a year." He, he, he still looks like he's in decent shape. Yeah. So, given some of these commitments. I can understand why why they're looking at Louise and they're also looking at how many centre-halves they've got. I mean, you know, Mavropanos out on loan, Callum Chambers out injured. We mentioned Mustafa, we mentioned Socrates, Pablo Marie is a very doable deal, mm. relatively cheap too. Saliba's coming back. Uh, it's probably more that I'm forgetting. Mavropanos. Yeah, exactly. So I, I can see why they might think about letting him go. If if I was making the decision from a purely footballing perspective, he's absolutely not the one 
that I would lose, you know, and and I don't think he'd be number one on Mikel Arteta's list to lose either. No, I don't think so. I mean, look, if you were to be brutally honest, and I'll be brutally honest here, I wouldn't be unhappy to lose all three of them. But if I had to keep one of the three, I think in the short term I'd prefer to keep Louise than than either Socrates or or certainly Mustafi. Yeah, and he does, Louise, for all his flaws, he does kind of have, you know, his ability on the ball is pretty great. It's sort of a superpower, you know, and it enables us to do things in terms of in mm. possession that we might not otherwise be able to do. Um, so, yeah, he, he if, if there's any way we could shed some of the less good ones and keep one of the more good ones, mm. I would prefer that. But I do think that we probably have to sort of... We have to kind of give the club, what, what can I say, not the benefit of the doubt, but I think we have to accept that decisions are going to be made maybe slightly more on a financial basis yes. than we would ideally like, and that is the reality of every business right now. No, I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair, that that perhaps sporting consideration won't be the first thing that, that informs the way we build our squad or assemble our squad ahead of next season, that there are going to have to be financial um yeah influences i guess you know mm. Mm. so look i'm not envious of anyone having to do it by the way but you know it is it's a it's a tricky situation and um we'll see what they come up with we will uh this question kind of touches on a similar thing it's from jamie kafash on twitter and jamie says uh Ask blog has been very critical of our transfer dealings under Raul. However, if we had signed Martinelli and Saliba, two of the hottest youngsters in the world, under Mislintat, wouldn't this have been hailed as a bit of Sven magic? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's a, fair, um, a fair question. We mm. still haven't seen Saliba yet. You know, there's, no. there's, there's, a, there's a huge... Look, I hope he's as fucking brilliant as all the articles say he is. Uh, I hope he's as uh, full of potential and promise as, as the transfer fee suggests and the sort of hoops that we went through to get him. Um, but we haven't seen him yet. And it's a lot to put on a 19-year-old defender. Um, so, we, sure. you know, we can't say if the Saliba deal had been done by Sven, we'd be hailing it as magic yet because we can't see... Um, that it is anything at this moment in time. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of a, a bit cautious about that one. Martinelli, you know, for me, one of the big positives of the season. I think it's a, a, a great coup, uh, a really, a really good transfer. We know that, um, it was put in place by, um, the man who is now basically our, our head scout, um, Francis Kajigao, um, who, if people listen to the, the podcast with, with Sesk, um, a few weeks back, you know, was responsible for finding him as well. So, you know, it, it was a great deal. It was a great deal. And, and the impact he's had this season has obviously been uh, very significant. And he's a very, very exciting talent. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't questions to ask about some of the deals that we've done, uh, some of the other deals that we've done. And it certainly doesn't... Um, wipe away questions we might have about some of the the departures and, and what have you. But, yeah, fair yeah. question overall. Uh, well, I mean, you wrote a good blog this morning that's worth reading if uh, 
if you're one of those people who listens to the pod but doesn't read the blog, it's a really good one about kind of Rouse and yeah, he's tenure mm. uh, at the club. And I do think it raises really important questions about kind of responsibility and um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, accountability. Yes. Uh, you know, and where the buck stops on certain decisions. There have been strange things. I mean, one thing that that I thought was strange at the time and that I continue to think is strange and kind of never really gets talked about is, uh, for example, selling Nacho Monreal for pittance, basically, mm. uh, at a time when he was really quite a useful player still. Um, and Unai Emery cited it, didn't he, in his Guardian interview. But, you know, that was just a sort of odd, an odd example of kind of losing someone for next to nothing when they were actually under contract, mm. um, albeit over 30. And I also think that Raul, unfortunately, made a bit of a cross for his own back in some ways with his statement about not letting players run down contracts. You know, this idea that two yeah. years out they would sign or be sold. I know that when that was said, a lot of people in football raised eyebrows because it's it, while it is a noble intention it is much much easier said than done and arsenal have failed to do it quite significantly and the situation with ramsey and welbeck going for nothing was obviously disastrous but we're talking now about uh, and granted the general financial landscape hasn't helped things but a, a whole heap more players potentially leaving in that situation. Yes, I mean, I feel like that is one of the big um, black marks over Sanyehi uh, and his tenure as, as head of football, director of football, whatever you want to call it. You know, he is calling the shots from a footballing perspective. Gazidis is gone, Mislintai is gone, he assumed the power. Uh, you know, he was appointed head of football and I know Vinay was made managing director. But one of the first things that he said when he came into the job was, we have to manage player contracts better. We cannot allow situations where players are going into the final 12 months of their contracts. And I realized that to an extent, he inherited the Ramsey situation and the Welbeck situation. Uh, nevertheless, you know, he said they made a mistake when it came to Ramsey. They could have made... Um, decisions on those players in, in the summer of 2018. I know it would have been a big upheaval, but ultimately would it have, would it not have been better for Arsenal to raise money um, in the transfer market by selling those two players? And now we're in a situation where uh, Aubameyang is in the final year of his contract. Socrates, Mustafi, nobody's crying too many tears, but you know it's still a situation which has left us with the problems that we discussed just a few minutes ago because of this, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the lockdown and the transfer market. You know, nobody could have... No Nobody could have um, predicted that, but it's still uh, a consequence of allowing the contracts to get to that situation. You know, Mesut Ozil, another one, perhaps we're, we're, we're happy to let it run out because there was no re really no other way of dealing with it. But what about, you know, Aubameyang? What about Saka? You know, these are, these are things that are happening that he said should not happen and they continue to happen and you've got to raise questions about our ability to manage those situations. Mm, absolutely. And I think, you know, it is possible... I was thinking about this before the podcast and I was like, well, maybe the way to approach it is to sort of go into bat 
foul a bit, you know, to play devil's advocate to make that an interesting dynamic. Because I think the, the transfer activity last summer is a really tricky one because it does feel to me like as a fan base our assessment of the business has vacillated quite a lot since it was done and I, th- I know that's inevitable because it's based on performance but uh, it feels to me like you know Pepe was hailed as a great coup at the time and then okay he doesn't quite hit the ground running then that gets reassessed Louise it, it got us out of a hole late in the day. I mean, certainly you can think under the previous stewardship of the club with Arson and Dick Law and others, I can imagine that that is a deal we wouldn't have done, you know, that we might have needed that experience at a half, but given the, the outlay we required, said we're not going to do it uh, for better or worse. Mm. So I think... We might have done something else. We might, but there were plenty of times we didn't. Yeah, you know? or would the Koscielny situation have developed that way? I mean, yeah, it's not like possibly it, not. It's not like it didn't happen with certain players, but generally it was younger players. Yeah, possibly not. Mm. I think that's fair. But I think what I mean is the the day after transfer deadline day, people were happy with those signings. I think. I think on the, at the end of the window, people were looking at that and going, "We had a good window," um, and so. I think that's sort of the only mitigation is that like some of the things that happen in terms of the team not then performing, it's kind of like, well, that's on Unai to an extent. Mm. And But then, of course, you've got the caveat of, well, maybe Unai should have been out the door quicker. So yeah. it's, a, it's a difficult argument to mount is what I'm saying. Like I've sort of tried to intellectually get my head around it. And I do have, I'm not going to say sympathy, but I do understand some of the decisions that Rao's made, but a lot of them haven't worked. Basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's okay to think one thing and then in six months' time when there's evidence or more information available to you to change your mind. You know, it's not that you were wrong in the first place. It's that, you know, you can make a decision. And like you say, sometimes uh, they just don't work. And that can happen in, in football. It's, you know, happens on a weekly basis in terms of team selection sometimes. So, you know, we're not, it's not as if um, everybody's expected to be perfect, but I think you can just have a, an overall look at what's, what's happened at the club um, and, and the way that football performance has been affected overall uh, under Raul's tenure and, 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 wonder if it stands up to a great deal of scrutiny but look if people want to read that piece they can do that today uh, just mm. visit the website arsblog.com and you will see the article there here's a question this comes from uh jesus okay it comes from ali sorry ali i didn't mean to say jesus there like it was uh, uh, i just oh, couldn't find ali it again. i couldn't find the question and then i found it straight away and they say uh i've lost it again fuck okay Uh, Hi, gents. Ahead of the Premier League returning on June 17th, it would be great if you could do a brief recap of Arteta's tenure to date. A reminder of tactics, approach, positives, negatives, etc. would be great. I seem to have pretty much forgotten everything in the lockdown. So here, here you go. Arsenal. <laughs> um, I mean, wow. I don't. We've admitted in part one, we don't know. But let's have a go, eh? Mm. So... The first game for Mikel Arteta, um, well, the first game he was in the stands was the Everton game, which was yeah. an absolutely diabolical match. I don't know if you remember it at all. I do. Um, it was the kind of the one where Freddie, 
I think he dropped Ozil and uh, played a lot of kids. Smith Rowe match. started that game, did he? Smith Rowe started, yeah. Um, and then Mikel took charge on Boxing Day against Bournemouth. Uh, and he had to wait for his first win. He, he drew at Bournemouth, he lost. In relatively unfortunate circumstances against Chelsea, as I recall, Arsenal started brilliantly but couldn't maintain it. And then they got that win over Manchester United, and mm. that was sort of what kick-started Arteta's reign. Um, and I think I'm right in saying... Apart from Olympiacos, we haven't lost a game since. Right. So domestically, mm. we haven't. Um, and that's probably the high point, isn't it? The United game still? I don't think we've surpassed that. No, I mean, I think in terms of pure performance, you could look at the second half against Newcastle. You know, I know we scored a couple of late goals, which added some gloss to the, the scoreline. Um, I think that there was an issue, wasn't there, where we were trying to trying to find a balance between uh, defensive stability and attacking potency. And, and for a while, it had to be a bit more um, weighted towards the defence. And I think it did come at the expense of some of our attacking uh, ability because we needed to sort out the defensive side of, uh, of the team, which I think he did to a large extent. Um, yeah, but, but I think you're right. I mean, we, we are shot... Uh, our chance creation as a rule, is down there. I mean, mm. we're not creating huge numbers of chances. Um, we are conceding less shots on goal too. So basically, from if you think about, if we go right back to the start of the season, the kind of end-to-end chaos basketball games like the one at Vicarage Road that we had under Emery, it's been a much more uh, controlled Arsenal that we've seen mm. under Arteta one that has much better positioning on the pitch. I think that's been one of the big changes under him. Yeah. And and there've been until now certain hallmarks of that shape and I so suppose they would be you know Granite Xhaka for example playing in central midfield but dropping in as almost an auxiliary fullback allowing particularly the left back to push on very high uh the right back until now in the Arteta team has played in a more conservative, narrow mm. fashion. I mean, we've even seen Socrates out there, haven't we, on games where Bellerin's not been available. Yeah, don't need um, any more of that when football gets yeah. back. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's been debate about that, about the kind of asymmetry of it and the degree to which it leaves uh, Pepe a little isolated at times. Um, but equally, I think that maybe Arteta seems to think that if you play Pepe, he doesn't offer you enough going the other direction so you have to take steps to prevent that and then in attack it's been very much this kind of 2-3-5 or 3-2-5 shape uh, with Saka pushing on Ozil and then almost five across the front you know with Aubameyang as a kind of narrow inside forward Lacazette whose form was being pretty much bemoaned I think some of it justifiably before football went away kind of holding down the centre-forward spot. Mm. Um, and then Aubameyang, Ozil kind of on the inside right channel and then Pepe on the right. But but actually, Lacazette had just sort of started to be pulled out of the team and Ketia had started a couple of Premier League games, hadn't he? And there was yeah. maybe the slight sense that he Arteta was going to have a proper look at Nketia between then and the end of the season. I yeah, think. that's interesting. I forgot, I'd kind of forgotten about that. Yeah. I'd forgotten about that, that sort of side of things. And I think there was... Um, 
an element to which we could see that the players were buying into what Arteta was doing, you know, on the training ground. I know there's this sort of new manager bounce and everybody was probably um, found it refreshing to to be communicated to in a way which connected with them, um, which I don't think was the case under Emery. Um so, yeah. Also, there was this slight sense of players coming in from the cold. I mean, Shaka, let's obviously yeah. not forget what happened with him and the armband had become uh, quite important to Arteta. Mustafi, another. And I think even Danny Ceballos, who was not in contention at all when Arteta first came in, wasn't like left out of squads. Uh, I think by the time football stopped, had kind of... I'm not going to say established himself, but maybe edged in front of certain others as yeah. as the partner for Shaka. Yeah, I mean, that's true. He had been injured, of course, which was a, a part of it. But I think Arteta was quite direct, wasn't he? And he has been about, you know, Ceballos. He has to get fit or whatever it was that he said about Ceballos. He really put it up to him and, and Ceballos responded. I think Arteta said he's training like an animal. Um, and similarly, uh, didn't he have words about Pepe, you know, in terms of his what he expected from him. So he hasn't been slow to to sort of talk no. uh, about players in Set public stands. to try and get more from I mean, them. Niles is maybe an example of someone who mm. that hasn't worked out as well for, you know, he seems yeah. to have fallen away from contention a bit. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the other th- sort of subplot that was just about starting to develop was at centre-back and, what you know, mm. could you play... Pablo Marie one side and David Luiz the other and have a bit more of an expansive uh, passing range out of centre-half. I think that was a sort of conversation yeah. that was happening around the time. Okay. But, but, but the reason that it's interesting is that I think many people had the impression that the way Arsenal were playing under Arteta was kind of a consequence of the fact that he came into the team with no preseason, mm. with uh, you know limited knowledge of the players he had at his disposal, um, injuries to certain key personnel like Tierney, for example, Bellerin and others, and that he was kind of making the best of a certain situation, and maybe there was uh, he was he saw the value in having a consistent shape and a consistent setup so that he could try and establish some patterns of play. Yeah, uh, and now that he has sort of got a little bit of a mini pre-season, it will be very interesting, won't it, to see to what degree those tropes continue. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Like I said, I'm, it's sort of blank slate time again. I'm very excited about what we're going to do and whether the whether the, the lockdown... I mean, we'd said before, didn't we, about Arteta that it was essentially a free hit for him, a free five, six months when he took over because the expectations and the situation we were in lent itself to that. You know, we were in the doldrums. Whatever he was able to achieve between uh, then and the end of the season would have been okay, you know, assuming it didn't go completely terribly. Um, But now I wonder if there's going to be a bit more of an element of, of needing to put in place the things that we're going to do next season and the idea that we might and we won't be the only club um, by any stretch of the imagination to do this which is focus on youth as a way of replenishing your squad and and rebuilding your squad rather than the transfer market is there just a little bit more of an impetus now to give those young players chances in the the remaining games that we have yeah and, and sometimes I think about sort of the winners and the losers 
Um, it's a horrible way to put it, I apologise, mm. but from the sort of recent crisis in football terms. And I think of a guy like Joe Willock, for example, who I think certain people looked at and thought, well, you know, is he ready to play for Arsenal? Is he is he ever going to be ready to play for Arsenal? But but now, given the, the limitations on spending and, you know, what we might be able to do in the transfer market, I think suddenly, you know, there is more of a clear path and a need for him to be mm. around. And I think that, yeah, it will definitely work in the favour of the, the academy players we've got coming through. And again, makes it all the more essential that we hold on to, to the very best of them. Mm. OK, have you got a question? Yes, I do. This is from Twitter. It's from Simon at Simon Weiss. Uh, and Simon says, Simon says, when will the club arrive in the 21st century and appoint further, i.e. younger, board members that could steer the club in the right direction? And I thought this was a good question as a jumping-off point to the discussion about the the chairman and uh, and the board. Well, um, I mean, I don't know, to be perfectly honest. I don't know... I mean, there was a suggestion that they wanted David O'Leary to join the board, um, but the board, as we know it or knew it, is gone, dead and buried. Sir Chips is retired, and we're not going to replace him. We're not going to replace um, the role of chairman, as far as I know. Um, we have it's a four-man board now of Stan, Josh, Ken Fryer, and Lord Harris. Right. So that's a, you know, Stan and Josh are basically the two guys. Yeah. I mean, look, Ken Fry is a, a really significant figure at Arsenal and, and almost out of respect for him. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You, you, you're not going to dismantle the board entirely. Yeah. Um, but in terms of real authority and power, mm. it's just with Stan and Josh and then the, the, football ex- the football executive committee. So the question you would have to ask is... Um, do we have enough expertise? Do we have enough knowledge? You know, uh, is there enough work for the guys that are there? You know, we've got uh, Ralph Sanyehi, obviously, he's head of football. Edu is our technical director. Husfami is the contracts guy and does a, a bit more behind the scenes as well. Um, are yeah, they going... The academy. Yeah. Uh, Per Mertesacker, of course, yeah. Um, but after that... And I'm sure Mikel Arteta has, you know, an input into um, certain aspects of the way the football club is being run, and you would hope um, with the recruitment. But what are they going to do? I mean, are they going to bring in a young person to do what? For what? You know, Mm -hmm. for what role? Um, Are they going to appoint somebody to provide... Like, if I was... If I was Stan and Josh Kroenke, I wouldn't necessarily appoint somebody to the football executive committee itself. Mm. If I was confident that the, you know, the expertise that we have to run the football club is there. So you got your technical director, you got your head of football, you got your head of recruitment, you got your head of scouting, you've got your head of the academy and all those things. If you believe those pieces are all in place, you wouldn't create a role just to create a role, just to add somebody to it. I would, if it were me, unquestionably add somebody to executive level with oversight 
of everything that goes on at a football level. Mm. Somebody who could assess the performance of all the people um, in the in their particular roles, just to see, you know, how good of a job are they doing? What exactly are they doing? You know, yeah. what is what is happening? How is it happening? Um, and within the within the business plan, within the strategy of the football club, I would have somebody who had oversight who reported directly to me as the one hundred percent owner of the football club. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Josh is, I think, in theory, that person, but he's a man with a lot on his plate. Yeah, right he's got the Denver Nuggets. The McNuggets. Um, yeah, I, I, it's a really interesting one, and uh, I thought that the timeline of Tim Payton, who obviously has been a spokesperson for the AST in the past, was interesting in terms of the sense of the board are there in part to sort of provide uh, a check you know, on the decisions made by the executive committee. I mean, mm. the, the the removal of the board as a sort of going concern or as a, as an authority within the club mm. grants more power indirectly to the executives um, and it places more responsibility on KSE to kind of uh, monitor that. Yeah. And... I don't even mean this as a slight against KSE, but they have a lot of teams, you know? Mm. And so they can't necessarily be... And I think that is sort of what the David O'Leary thing was intended as. Um, yeah. But there was a bit of resistance there. So, yeah, I mean, I think as well it's slightly... It's it's a bit of a shame on the tradition front. I mean, the reason this is happening is that Arsenal is now a privately owned club, so there is not really mm. a, a need for a board the buck stops with one man or two men one family let's put it like that yeah um but yeah it, it is a departure for the club and a bit of a, a it feels feels a little bit odd to me that's all yeah. just as someone who's grow, grew up with the club operating sure yeah i mean look it's a, a testament to the world that we live in now and the fact that the ownership you know, has changed in such a considerable way over the last, you know, five, ten years at Arsenal. Um, you know, and, and I say that recognising that not many fans uh, will mourn Sir Chips. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. He pissed a lot of people off, you know? <laughs> sure. I mean, at the, at the heart of it, though, he was an Arsenal fan. Yeah. You know? yeah. So yeah. there's just a slight difference, um, you know, when it comes to, to KSE and Stan and Josh. But, you know, I, I think if I was in charge of a of a a business worth two billion pounds, I would most definitely have some independent auditors looking at every aspect of that business. And maybe they do. Maybe I'm completely wrong about this. And maybe that's something that that they would do as a matter of course. Mm -hmm. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know who that person is at the football club. They would need to be there, you know, right now. So uh, I don't know that that role necessarily exists. It might exist within, within the, the KSE organization. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily an Arsenal employee, so so who knows? Okay, here's a couple of questions from the Discord. One comes from uh, Cesar, who says, who do you think is going to be the first player to score for Arsenal after this long break? Um, then we've got one from Wise Marklar, who says, who is going to be the most entertaining player to listen to on the pitch? Yeah, I liked that question. Who's going to score? Aubameyang, he's the only one who scores. I think that one's quite easy. Um, unless you have an alternative theory. 
I I I like a bit of a long shot. So come I'm, on then. I'm gonna go with. David Louis free kick. <laughs> no, no, that's never worth every happen. penny. Okay. <laughs> um, I am gonna say. Granite Xhaka. Ooh, okay. Yeah, just for the hell of it. I mean, it is probably going to be Aubameyang, but, like, fuck it. Who's going to be the most interesting to listen to? Mm. Well, I mean, I doubt we're the most vocal, you know. Um, Certainly a lot of our players uh, aren't especially... I think Louise is one who you probably will hear. I think Xhaka is another voice Mm. you will hear. Um, Are we not slightly more inclined or more likely, rather, to hear from players playing in wide areas than we are... Because of mics. Yeah, because of microphones. Very possibly. I mean, I think what will be really interesting is hearing Arteta. And I think that you will hear a lot of Mikel Arteta Mm. because he talks non-stop through a game. Yeah. Um, On the pitch... I mean, who have you got on the flanks? Pepe doesn't really speak. Aubameyang barely does. I think if he has to talk to the referee as captain, he will do. But he's not a guy who is particularly vocal. Um, I think maybe Hector, because you've got the added Mm. bonus with Hector of the accent. Yeah. The brilliant accent. Could be a good one. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say Ballerin. And a final one from the Discord from Ace Aurenius. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm. So, any predictions on which Arsenal players will thrive in Project Restart football, considering their strengths, etc.? For example, Mesedoza will be able to use his vision being an inherent skill to find opportunities and space loosened up during gameplay due to the opposition's lack of training and, uh, you know, not being fully fit. Interesting. Um, I think, uh, with, at the risk of being boring, I'm going to say Aubameyang again because he is such an extraordinary athlete and I think he'll find his level maybe quicker than some others. Um, and if you're if you're a little bit less sharp than normal, I think Aubameyang will punish you for it. Uh, I also have a... It, it's less to do with a specific skill, but like you, I have a slight hunch for Reese Nelson in what remains of the season. I just hmm. feel like maybe an opportunity is there for him. And given the amount of games we'll have to play, some inevitable rotation, I know that Mikel Arteta really believes in him and has given him some increased confidence. And and we all actually know how much ability he does have. You know, anybody who saw him play at academy level, nobody questions the talent that Reese Nelson has. Mm. But, and if he can find a way to express it consistently, you know, he's he, he hasn't exploded onto the scene like a, a Jaden Sancho. But let me tell you, three years ago, people were talking about those people like equivalent talents. And Sancho is now a hundred million pound player, whatever it might be. Now, it's not no guarantee Nelson will ever get there, but there is a lot of unexplored potential with him. Mm. And I think... I just have the the sense that he might be a bit of a pet project for Arteta. Yeah. So, yeah, what about you? Um, I think it's a reasonable point about, about Ozil, but it's sort of dependent on the rest of the teammates being able to, you know, get on his wavelength and also mm. exploit the, the lack of... Um, the lack of uh, 
fitness by the opposition. It just strikes me as well that maybe goalkeepers, um, yeah, goalkeepers need to practice or should they be okay? I mean, they don't have the same kind of physical um, involvement in a game that, you know, a central midfielder does. So I wonder, would it be easier for them to get back to their, to their full level because they can do a lot of work on the, the reflexes and the sharpness in training, uh, and it's not as if they've got to sort of run 10, 11 kilometres a game. So Yeah, the lungs don't have to quite get back to the same capacity. Mm. I mean, the only thing I'd say about goalkeepers is, I, I guess when we were in proper lockdown, while a, an outfield player can go for a run, it's quite it's probably quite difficult for a goalkeeper to keep their reflexes sharp. They just, I don't know. just all they need is three oranges. Right, and they just juggle. Just juggle. That's how you yeah. do it. I think that's what Leno was probably doing. Mm. I mean, in seriousness, I wonder if there is a bit of tech. Like, you know, with tennis players, the, t- the ball cannon. I mm. wonder if that exists within football, that you can get shots fired at you sort of automatically. Yeah, there is, isn't there? There must be. I'm pretty there sure there is. The problem is ever all the all the all the coaches like like taking the outfield shots themselves, right? Because it's uh, yeah. fun. We just fire the coaches because we have to pay them wages, and we replace them with machines. You remember, you know those like um, uh, you know those scary Boston Dynamic dog robot things that mm. can you know even if you hit it with a baseball bat, it just sort of flips over and keeps walking at you, or you cut off one of its legs and it keeps walking at you uh, or it can open doors or climb tables or you know run up sheer mountain faces those terrifying robot things just move into the whole uh, ball cannon uh, sphere and they'll make a fortune from football clubs who want to let humans go because they have to pay them money you just have to put a little bit of uh, you know petrol or electricity in the robot whatever it is batteries I guess yeah that's a great idea, yeah. actually. In these economics, least stretch times. Yeah. Let's invest in robots. Let's invest in I've got one more before we go. This has been a long part, too, so let's just do oh, one I've more. I've got one more go as on, well. Go on, go on, then. Mine is about Saliba, because people keep asking about oh, yeah. when can Saliba play. Uh, for example, Sonny Cool on the Discord. His contract with St Etienne, his loan contract, runs until the end of June. So he, he it will stay with them until then, at least. He won't be eligible to play in the Premier League this season. But I expect efforts will be made to have him join up mm. as early as possible so he can kind of acclimatise. Yeah. Uh, final question then. It comes from Daniel, who's at Danino58 on Twitter. He says, I was having a discussion with a friend who said it will be weird when football returns indoors. I said, it's behind closed doors and not indoors. They then said, all football is played indoors, to which I said, even enclosed stadiums have a roof which makes it outdoors. Discuss. Uh... I don't understand the last point. Enclosed stadiums have a roof. Yeah, so even if... Outdoors. Yeah. So even, like, let's say the Cardiff Arms Park. Now, what's it called? Millennium Stadium? Yeah. Has that got a retractable that's roof? That's got a retractable roof. Uh, if, the, if the roof is retractable, then it's outdoors. If you were to go into a building yeah. and it was surrounded on all sides and there was a door out to, like, a courtyard, you would say that was an indoor courtyard, would you not? No, I'd say that was a square, a, a, a rectangular, a square building <laughs> with an outdoor... <laughs> with an outdoor middle. An outdoor interior. Yeah. Yeah, like a lot of... Um, Monasteries and stuff are built like that, aren't they? It's where there's kind of a... A football a pitch. Yeah. 
yeah, in the middle pitch. Yeah. Um, so what do you... I think football stadiums are outside. Well, the, the buildings themselves are, but is the interior, is the inside of a football stadium outside? I mean, you walk out onto the pitch, but it is within a structure. So yeah. it's an interior, indoor... Doesn't work, really, does it? So, yeah, they will. These matches will be behind some closed doors, but no. some of those doors will be open. Otherwise, you can't get to the pitch. Yeah, you can't get from indoors in the stadium to the outdoors pitch. You see, unless they are going to like helicopter people down onto the pitch so that all the doors remain closed. Bit of bit of and, razzmatazz. Yeah, they arrive by helicopter in full kit. And then depart in the same way at full time. Just hang on to a rope. Yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? That would be good. Yeah. A bit, a bit scary, though. I think, um, we, yeah, it, I think a football pitch is in its outside indoors. Perfect. We've got it sorted. We've got it sorted. Okay, well, look, um, thank you to everybody for listening. Wherever you are, I hope you're safe and well and doing okay. Um, we appreciate you being here as always. Um, we'll have some stuff midweek, I think. And, of course, we'll have another Arscast on Friday. Uh, until then, we'll, uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.